coming and for the you know welcome earlier on in the you know at the cafeteria so uh you know this place is so scenic and beautiful and you know you could be doing something better with your time uh, but you chose to come and listen to me read from my work uh, it's always a thing of joy really to be in the company of writers you know uh, while we were doing the long drive from Burlington to here uh, I you know I was making uh, Colleen talk a lot and one of the things uh, we discussed was how sometimes the word can become too small and also too you know what word should I use now probably let me not go down the philosophical route now but you know uh, but we are we are the ones who try to make sense of you know the complexity the gloom the joy and and all the things that is this world and this uh, universe uh, so I hope that it is uh, you know from a resource that most of you are familiar with whether you are a poet or a fiction writer or a visual artist that I draw from and uh, in the two books that I have written so far and uh, probably would not write another one except uh, if you guys want me to keep going then uh, I will I'll try uh, you know they they've been about uh, you know the things I care about and uh, I and I have been trying so much to narrow it down to one thing so far I think I've done it to death now and I will move on from there in the future but I really have been uh, very interested in and very fascinated or even obsessed with uh, who we used to be as West Africans before uh, you know we were exposed to colonialization uh, I, I don't see colonialization as a complete hundred percent evil I think there were some good things that came out of it uh, but there is a, a serious damage in that uh, a lot of things have been destroyed and lost and uh, in the fishermen uh, which in some ways to my mind is like a parable of of that of the aftermath of that not even the aftermath from from when it occurred and the aftermath so you have this bustling family whose lives are turned around when they encounter this external force that comes in uh, and disrupts the unity and uh, uh, in an orchestra of minorities which uh, is kind of a newborn uh, this year uh, I have taken that uh, to a different level so I, I have gone back to the uh, Igbo religion or Dinani which is now uh, something that is you know heavily demonized amongst the Igbo people so the worst group of people are those who practice this religion which used to be the religion of you know the ancestors and you know writ large of course in the religion is the culture itself 
of the people, the institutions they have, and all that. So I've, I have uh, a a spirit uh, who has been coming and going for seven hundred years. Uh, tell the story, so which means that uh, through the lens of this spirit, which ensues the main character of the novel, I'm able to, uh, you know, draw a kind of a map of history of the Igbo people. So, and also go very deep into what they were like and what they believed and how they lived prior to uh, the contact with the West and in the present time. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say more than that because I want at the end of the reading, I want you guys to be so mad, you know, that you will be fighting, you know, over who to get to the line first and pick up a copy of the book. Uh, so, uh, I will let you discover uh, what the story is about and all, uh, you know, all the necessary details. So, again, it's the voice of this chi, the guardian spirit of this character that you will hear. So, I'll read uh, one chapter close to the beginning and then I will read something down the road in the novel when uh, the main character has left Nigeria for North Cyprus, uh, a country wedged between Turkey and Greece. Egunu, one of the most striking differences between the way the great fathers and their children, uh, between the, the way of the great fathers and their children is what the latter have adopted, is that the latter has adopted the white man's idea about time. The white man reckoned long ago that time is divine, an entity to whose will man must submit. Therefore, following a prescribed tick, one will arrive at a particular place, certain that an event will begin at that set time. They seem to say, brethren, an army of divinities among us, and it has set its purpose at 12.40, so we must submit to its dictates. If something happens, the white man obliges himself to describe it to time. On this day, July 28, 1985, such and such happened. Whereas time to the fathers was something that was both spiritual and human. It was in part beyond their control and was ordered by the same force that brought the universe into existence. When they wanted to discern the beginning of a season or pass the age of a day or measure the length of years, they looked to nature. Has the sun risen? If it has, then it must be day. Is the moon full? If it is, then we must gather our best clothing empty our bands and get ready to celebrate the new year. If in fact the sound we hear is thunderclaps, then surely the drought must have ended and the raining season must be upon us. But also the wise fathers believe that there is a part of time that man can control, a means by which man can subject time to his own will. To them time is not divine. It is an element like air, 
that can be put to various uses. They can use air, for instance, to put out fires, to blow insects out of people's eyes, or even to cause flutes to produce music. This is the same way that time can be subject to the will of man. When a group, of, when a group among the elders says, for instance, we, the elders of Amobu, have a meeting at sunset, that time is expansive. It could be the beginning of sunset or its middle or its end, but even this does not matter. What matters is that they know the number of those who are coming to the meeting. Those who arrive ahead of others wait, talk, laugh until everyone is there. That's when the meeting begins. It was thus following the prescribed tick of the clock that she got there before him that evening. She looked even better than she'd looked earlier. Wearing deep red lipstick that reminded him of Miss J and a dress that had leopard prints on it. After my host sat down and adjusted his cap to make sure it concealed every part of his head, she said, And on so, I want to ask you a question. Why did you go to the bridge at the very moment and stop that night? As he made to answer, she raised her hand, her eyes closed. I really want to know, really, why did you go there at that very time? Now my host raised his head to look above her to the ceiling to avoid her eyes. I don't know, he said. He picked his words with care, for rarely did he speak in the language of the white man. Something just pushed me there. I was coming way back in Enugu, and then when I saw you, I just said, let me stop. He glanced now out of the window, allowed his eyes to fall on a child who was rolling a motorcycle tire along the road with a stick, trailed by other children. You saved my life that day, you know, she said. You will never. The ringing of her phone made her pause. She unwrapped it from a handkerchief in her paws and... On seeing the screen, she said, Ah, I was supposed to go somewhere with my parents now, but I forgot before. I'm so sorry, Nonso, but I have to go now. Okay, okay, he said. Where is your poetry? I would like to see it. What, what street? It is number 12, Amanzuku Road, off Niger, he said. Okay, give me your number. He leaned in towards her and listed the numbers in their order. I'll come there one of these days. I'll call you later so that we can meet. Because I could see in my host the beginning of the growth of this great seed that bears root downward in the soul of any man and bears fruit upward, the fruit of affection that becomes love, I came out of him and followed the woman. I wanted to know what she would do, if she would remain and not vanish as the previous women had done. So I followed her in her car as she drove, and I saw on her face an expression of joy. I heard her say to herself, Chinonso, funny man, and then laugh. I was watching, curiously observing, from, uh, when from within her something floated out like a thick formed steam rising 
and within the battling of an eye eyelid what stood before me was a spirit whose face and appearance were exactly like the woman's save for her luminous body which was covered with woolly symbols and her extremities graced with beads and strings of cowries it was her chi even though i had seen i had been told many times at the caves of spirits uh, that guardian spirits of the females of mankind possessed more powers of sensitivity i was astonished at how it, it was able to see me while still in the body of its host something i and other spirits cannot do son of the spirits what do you want from my host the chi said in a voice as thin as those of the maidens who dwell on the land on the road to alandichia the hill of the ancestors daughter of allah i come in peace i come not with trouble i said i saw that the chi who was closed clothed in the bronze skin of light with which you drape the guiding spirit of the daughters of mankind looked at me with eyes that were color of pure fire she had begun to speak when her host honked and put to a sudden uh, stop shouting jesus christ what are you doing Olga? you know sabi drive the car that had veered in her way turned towards another street and she continued on sighing loudly perhaps now certain that her host was fine the chi turned back to me and spoke in the esoteric language of Baymore. my host has erected a figurine in the shrine of her heart her intentions are pure as the waters of the seven rivers of Osimere and her desire is as true as the clean salt beneath the waters of Iyocha. I believe you, Wani Buife, I said, guardian spirit of the dawn light, daughter of Ogugu, Allah, and Komoso. I only came because I wanted to be sure that she desires him truly. I shall return with your words to comfort my host. May their union bring them fulfillment in this circle of life and in the seventh and eighth circles of life. Wahasa, Wahasato. He said, she said, and without a moment's notice, she returned into her host. I was greatly delighted by this consultation, and with this confidence, I returned to my host and flashed in his thought that indeed, the woman loved him so you must be wondering what is going on here what is this guy talking about well uh, uh, the was believed that every human being has uh, a guardian spirit in them oh sorry uh, has a guardian spirit in them a chi the chi that prefixes my name for instance chigozie or chinua uh you know so so there's a unique divinity in every human being and there's a, a a lot of uh you know things about that in the sense that the the political system for instance which was mostly egalitarian uh was because of this belief in the chi 
so uh, they didn't have any kind of monarchical system because they felt like okay if every human being has a kind of a god in them so there wasn't any need to build hierarchies so why should i rule over somebody who is also divine as myself so uh, what they did was the oldest people, uh, the oldest member of a particular family sent a representative to the village council or the town council and deliberations and decisions were made that way. So uh, it was one of the reasons why when the British came to that part of Africa, they had a hard time uh, colonizing them because what they normally did was they would just go with the cannon and to the palace of the of the you know leader and the person either submits or they tell the person to sign something and they cannot read the english language of course so they sign away the sovereignty of the land uh thinking that you know they had signed a kind of friendship pack <laughs> so but when, when they came to uh, most of the uh, places in the east of Nigeria, there were no kings or queens. So what do you do? They, what they ended up doing was impose one on the people and build a kind of... If you've read Things Fall Apart, you probably remember that part where they, they imposed a district commissioner on the, you know, on, on the village and the people hated the guy very much. So it was because of the belief in the chi. So of course the chi is, is, is who has just told the story just heard, and uh, it encounters the chi of, you know, the lady whom uh, Chinon, so the main character, is about to date or has just gone on a date with. So I will read a part uh, when uh, later on in the novel Chinon so goes to Cyprus and uh, faces some trial there and then eventually returns back to Nigeria. So this is kind of drawn a little bit from my own uh, uh, history. Uh, I, w I did college in that country, so which was very interesting. So I uh, went from Nigeria to North Cyprus and then uh, to the US for grad school. Uh, so let me read that and uh, I will take your questions. In the state of anguish, Chuku, my host walked towards the city, its expanse, its world, opened before him like a great cosmic secret. Desert, desert, he heard again and again. From Titus, from Linus, from Tobey, and even Jamike. This was the one word that adequately described this landscape. But what is a desert? A desert is a place of abundant but losers. In the land of the fathers, it is hard to scoop earth from the ground. Something firmed it to the ground. Perhaps the frequent rain made it difficult to come up easily. One has to scratch or dig to scoop earth, but here not so. The very stepping of one's feet worried the ground and whipped up dust. No sooner has one walked a distance than one's shoes become covered in the darkish clay and it spreads and runs about everywhere, accommodating little vegetation and resisting most, most of what seeks to plant its root here to become or to vegetate. 
toss. That which grows in it is tough and resilient. The olive tree, for instance, a tree that does not need water to grow except whatever it can obtain from deep beneath the soil, for the country seeds on water. Every other thing that inhabits this land must subdue it. There must be a struggle, a hemispheric battle in which huge stones, hills, mountains, rocks find their way here or emerge from some immensity beyond all knowledge and crush the enemies of earth and dust and insist that here, on this place, must I stand. And so shall it be. It must say, though, I must say, though, that in these it shares the affinity with the land of the fathers, where the earth in its fecundity exhibits an exuberance that marks the desert. So my host walked on for what must have been an hour more, with the strides of a slightly drunk, until he arrived at an alley of houses. The longing to reach the city was in his mind like the test for water in the desert. He wanted to reach there and find the nearest bus station where he could wait to be picked up. Presently, he sauntered into the half-closed mouth of a street which wound down inwards, away from the long main road as if in fear. It seemed to be a poor neighborhood, for the houses were low-roofed and old. Their fa facades, strewn with flower-bearing plants, firmed the clay-colored earth. An uprooted gate leaned against a wall in front of one of the houses, and there a man stood on a ladder, stretched against the walls, nailing something into it. Across, on the other side of the road, overlooking a bridge, was a deep crater that stretched for kilometers, the earth rising in sinuous rows towards what seemed to be a more developed part of the city. He followed the trail, tired, half mad, walking against the wheel of his heart, past the empty houses that sat like shadows in the sun, the sweat-soaked fabric he wore sticking to his skin. He heard itinerant voices of people he could not see, birds he'd never seen before plunged across the plains and sailed at an unhurried pace. Ebunu, as soon as he advanced around a bend where the road turned back right towards the main one, he was jolted by a shout, and the sound of rushing feet behind him, followed closely by, this, uh, by the sound of approaching voices. He turned, and a group of children, having burst out of the gate of a compound nearby, for he saw the small gate swinging, came rushing towards him, shouting what sounded like, Abby, Abby, and then, Ronaldinho, Ronaldinho. In the moment between the closing of an eye and its reopening, my host was in the midst of a thronging mob full of noise and push that was speaking in an unfamiliar language. A hand tugged at his shirt from behind, and before he could turn in that direction, another pulled at his hem. Someone shouted in his ear, and before he could make sense of what had been said, he was submerged in a well of words. Agunjiebe, he stamped his feet on the ground and waved his arms about to free himself from the grabbing hands and in the dim reprieve, he realized that he was ticketed in a mob of curious boys. The recognition shocked him 
and in that instant he yelled that they desist. He closed his bag with one hand and raised the other hand, swung himself from a grip and staggered. The boys behind him stepped back from him like scared flies. He clenched his teeth, raised his hand and landed it on the first head he could reach. He stepped back as quickly as he could and in a quick moment he was free. The children, what are they? From whence had they come? Could they not see that he bore no resemblance to Ronaldinho? Did they not know also that Ronaldinho could not possibly be here like him, eviscerated a walking shell of what he had been just a week before? One of the children stepped forward now and motioned to the others to back off. This one was dressed in shorts and a singlet, taller than the rest. This boy started saying something and gestured to the small boy who was carrying a ball. Then he demonstrated that he wanted signatures. Another brought a pen and a book. They all gestured and, in, and it became clear to my host that their hectoring would cease quickly if he heeded their request. As he took the ball to sign it, an image he had once seen at the back of his uh, parents' house in the village years ago came back into his mind now to insult him. It was a shell that must have belonged to some big snail, now empty, dried, calcified, moving slowly away. At the time, it had seemed like a miracle. But when he examined it closely, he saw that it was being ferried by a team of ants. He felt that the same thing was happening to him now in this poor neighborhood of this strange country where these children had mistaken him for the best footballer in the world. They did not know that he was a man of great poverty, a man whose poverty extended beyond the diameter of time. In the past, he owned what he owned he lost in the present he owned nothing and in the prospective future nothing and here he was with the pen one of them had offered him signing a ball books shirts even their palms at the time he had screamed at the sight of the moving shell carried by the borrowed legs of an army of ants in wonder he had called to his mother to come and see it but now, at the lifting of himself before the eyes of these strange boys, he broke down and wept. And the impact of the tears was immediate. For when the children noticed that he, Ronaldinho, was crying, they stopped dead. Here was a great footballer doing what children were prone to do. It was a dead giveaway. One after the other, the small hands withdrew. The voices went silent. The cheerful eyes were re replaced with perplexity, and the feet that had encircled him like a silent subterranean army withdrew. He turned from them and continued on his way, sobbing as he went. Thank you.